You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. When you look at the regulatory authorities that are out there today, the SEC uh, does make a, a fair amount of sense because it can cover publicly traded companies. And in this case, they've also covered uh, uh, companies in, in the investment business as well. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has the story of Google moving to end geofence warrants. I've got the ongoing debate on whether or not to pay the ransom. And later in the show, we're joined by Paul Kurtz, Chief Cybersecurity Advisor and Field CTO at Splunk, with his perspective on how the CISO and board view the new SEC cyber disclosure regulations. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we've got some interesting stuff to share this week. You want to kick things off for us here? Sure. So my story comes from TechCrunch and is by Zach Whitaker. And it's kind of a follow-up story, an unexpected follow-up story to our uh, episode last week. We talked about a Fourth Circuit case dealing with the sticky issue of geofence warrants uh, and whether uh, that passes constitutional muster under the Fourth Amendment. One of the things we discussed is that in the absence of any prevailing legal standard, uh, we kind of rely on Google as the chief collector of our location information to set the policy for us uh, through their uh, uh, terms of service, and that's what they've done. What came out after we recorded last week is that Google is moving to end geofence warrants, uh, which is pretty remarkable, and they have the power to do it given their market share in this space. So the big headline here is that Google will allow users to store their location data on their devices rather than on Google servers. And this will have the effect of ending the practice that allowed law enforcement agencies across the country to go to Google and say, hey, can you give us all of the devices that were in this particular area at this particular time? If that's stored now on individual devices and not on the servers, it's impossible for law enforcement to get. Uh, so they didn't explicitly say that they were ending the use of geofence warrants. Right. I think that might have been uh, a little too big of a pill to swallow, and maybe that's not <laughs> something they want to share publicly necessarily. Yeah. Uh, so the way they couch it is that they're going to give users more power to control their own data. And I think this is very significant. Now, other companies... They may or may not follow suit, but I think it's important to note how big of a player Google is in this space. Not only are they, uh, do they operate the 
all Android devices, but most of us use Google Maps. Uh, so they know where they know where we are at all times. Right, they're the biggest provider of of mapping services out there. I guess I guess Google Maps is the the, the Google big Maps daddy is of the them big all. thing. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I think it can't be understated how big of a decision this is. What I'm waiting for is the type of pushback that we may or may not see from law enforcement agencies at both the state and federal level. Uh, Geofence warrants have increased exponentially over the past several years. Google received, I believe, over 11,000 geofence warrants the last year that it was measured in 2020. Uh, And that was about a quarter of all of the legal demands that Google received. So if you can think about all the legal demands, subpoenas, uh, requests under the Stored Communications Act, having a quarter of them be these geofence warrants, which are not particularized, I think is really startling. Uh, And I think in the long run, it may have been bad publicity for Google to know that the government has access through Google to this tool that might be used to get us in trouble with the law. Hmm. So my question is, how does law enforcement react? Mm -hmm. Uh, If they say this is going to inhibit our ability to solve crime, we're in a high crime environment, especially in these major cities— Uh, Here are a bunch of specific examples where a geofence warrant has led to a conviction where it otherwise might have not led to a conviction. And I wonder if either that would force Google to voluntarily backtrack on this decision, which I doubt, or uh, if it motivates Congress to pass legislation requiring Google to maintain that uh, that data on its own servers, Hmm. which would be, uh, to put it mildly, incredibly controversial. But I don't (laughs) think uh, that type of thing would be out of the question. Uh, Really? Interesting. Yeah, I, 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 hmm. Uh, So a couple things here. I mean, uh, before we dig in too deep, I mean, geofencing, just to to lay out what that is in case folks need a a quick uh, refresher here. I mean, this is when, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is when, Law enforcement comes to an organization like Google and they say, we want to know everybody who was in this place in this range of times based on the the location pinging that their devices have done to you. Exactly. And there's no individualized suspicion. There's no, at this point, you don't have an identified suspect. Mm. That would be a very different subject. What's happening here is uh, simply we want a uh bulk collection uh, of all the devices that were in this area at this particular time. And it's been used to solve crimes as petty as, uh, you know, theft from supermarkets to as serious as the January 6th attacks. Hmm. So it's pretty widely used um, by both state and and federal agencies, uh, which is why this decision, I think, is so significant. And it is something that is unique to Google. Uh, One of the things they note in this article is that Apple claimed in 2022 that it had only received 13 geofence warrants. The huh. reason they received such a tiny fraction of what Google received is that uh, Apple, quote, does not have any data to provide in response to geofence requests because this data relies on or resides in users' devices, which Apple cannot access. So I think Google is trying to uh, become Apple in this realm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And whether this really inhibits the work of law enforcement, I think, is the key question here. I certainly think we could see some type of proposal that requires these big tech companies to retain location data at their servers for some, some limited time. Maybe it's 45 days, maybe it's a year just as a crime-fighting measure, given how effective this tool has been. Mm -hmm. um, I think you would get massive pushback from 
some of the civil libertarians in Congress, organizations like Epic and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Right. Um, and I think Google is kind of responding preemptively to those types of criticisms here. I think they've um, maybe expressing a mild form of guilt that they've been part of this <laughs> form of mass data collection. Are you projecting, Ben? Are maybe you projecting? I'm projecting on my, my friends at Google. <laughs> So the fallback here, perhaps for law enforcement, is that they they would still have access to cell tower location data, right? They would, uh, but to get cell tower location data per the Carpenter decision, uh, you need a warrant with individualized suspicion based on probable cause. Ah, so that's a much higher burden, or much okay. a much higher burden. So yeah. far, there has not been. There is a Google had required government to produce a warrant for them to turn over uh, geofence data, uh-huh. uh, but the government never needed individualized suspicion because by necessity or by definition, when you're asking for a geofence warrant, you're asking for everybody's information, not just one person's information. Right. So cell site location information uh, usually pertains to an individual and per the Carpenter decision that requires a warrant based on probable cause, which is difficult to obtain, especially when you're at the beginning of an investigation you don't have any leads, uh, and uh, it's just one of those things that's going to make the life of a law enforcement agency that much more difficult. So at the risk of getting in the weeds here, how, why is it that um, the Carpenter decision made it so that cell tower location data uh, requires that individualized suspicion, but a geofence from someone like Google does not? Well, I guess I should be clear here. So things like tower dumps, uh, which are kind of the very close cousin of geofence warrants, still might be permitted. I think there's some disagreements uh, with the jurisdiction. So tower dumps are uh, getting the cell site location information from everybody within a particular area at a particular time. Okay. Uh, I think the Carpenter decision makes it more difficult uh, because we have this Supreme Court finding that there's something unique about cell site location information. Mm. Uh, the unique things about cell site location information vis-a-vis something like Google Maps is the lack of voluntariness. I see. So all of us use our uh, devices. We have to use them to participate in modern life. Right. We're not really consenting to any... Uh, Organ- any any company collecting our data here. We're heading just- towards the EULA, aren't we, Ben? We're heading towards the EULA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think what the Supreme Court says, I think they've actually kind of dismissed the fact that you can EULA your way out of this, so to speak, hmm. by saying you need a cell phone to participate in modern society. Uh, as soon as you turn on your device, it pings a tower. So you're not really making any, any conscious choice to forfeit your reasonable expectation of privacy. Whereas for something like Google Maps, you are making that choice. I mean, you do have to agree to the Google Maps terms and conditions. And it's just much more obvious to an average consumer that when you're using mapping technology, rather than just making a call on your cell phone, your phone company is going to have an idea of your location. That's just much clearer to the average non-tech savvy consumer. So... I don't think this necessarily means that all tower dumps are unconstitutional. I just think because of the Carpenter decision, there is this increased level of protection for historical cell site location information. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, this seems to me to be a good thing for individual privacy. I think so. And I think for Google's reputation as uh, a company that is privacy conscious, 
Uh, and, you know, I think perhaps their view in the long run is that this will be better for their bottom line. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll take it. <laughs> we'll see how it plays out, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll have a link to that story in the show notes. Um, my story this week uh, comes from uh, our friends over at the Washington Post, uh, specifically Tim Starks, who writes the the uh, Cybersecurity 202 at the Post and also is a regular over on the CyberWire podcast with me. In light of the recent story, as you and I are recording this uh, here today, uh, we got word that um, the ransomware group uh, Rysida has posted uh, about one and a half terabytes of data on their darknet site, on their leak site, uh, that affects Insomniac Games. They're the, the folks who make Spider-Man 2. They have a game that they're working on uh, with the Wolverine character. And basically what happens, what happened is uh, Rysida hit Insomniac Games with ransomware. Insomniac Games said, we're not paying the ransom. And Rysida said, okay, we're going to publish, yeah. <laughs> publish your stuff. And that's what's happened. Uh, Rysida has uh, stuck to their word. Uh, Can I and- just say something really quickly on this? Sure. They said that uh, they were able to obtain t- the next 12 years worth of uh, sensitive commercial and strategy documents, Slack screenshots and personnel files that would reveal the studio's release slate for 12 years. I had no idea that these companies, and maybe it's not universal for all these companies, do that level of planning. I'm frankly kind of impressed. I don't know what I'm going to be doing 12 days from now, let alone 12 years from now. Right, exactly. Yeah, what's your 12-year plan? Yeah, I don't know. Try not to die? Yeah, yeah, I don't know what I'm having for lunch today. I don't know what my 12-year plan is. No, well, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with just the scope of these games now. You know, they're bigger than movies. Absolutely. And uh, the amount of effort that it goes into creating something like this, I I guess you need to have that sort of timeline. You know, I I imagine a lot of it, too, is just lining up investment and getting all your ducks in a row. You know, I'm sure some of it's aspirational. Right, right. But that leads me to uh, the story in the Washington Post uh, from Tim Starks and his colleagues there where they surveyed a bunch of cybersecurity professionals to see whether or not they uh, are for or oppose a ban on paying the ransom. Any guesses of where this landed, Ben? Well, I have the answer, unfortunately, in front of me. So, (laughs) Okay. Well, according to the survey, 74%— We should give our users or our listeners just a quick second to think up their own answer and then see if it aligns with the actual number. Yeah, I'm trying to think what I would have thought. I guess this this tracks with me. So here's the—the answer is 74% of the cyber experts that the Post surveyed oppose a ban on paying ransoms. That would have, that's in line with what my expectations would have been as well. Yeah. yeah. Why, why do you, why would you have uh, thought that it would go this way? I think I've just talked to enough individuals who have been impacted by ransomware events, specifically in my work, units of local government, yeah. uh, who are caught so flat-footed that they're being presented with some of the worst options imaginable, and they don't want to be hemmed in by um, any type of ban like this given how desperate a situation it becomes uh, when you have to recover that data. All circumstances are are different, and I think um, that's what some of these experts are, are getting at here. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's more just kind of a general vibe I've gotten um, from talking to people in this space. Yeah. This article goes through some of the pros and cons, you know, the arguments for and against. They say, uh, 
Arguments against a ban include the risk of penalizing the victims, um, and they, they point out especially folks in critical infrastructure uh, just taking away their options. Um, you know, if, you, if you're supplying water for a, a, a town and uh, paying the ransom means that the water gets turned back on, uh, that's something you got to weigh. Right. I mean, th- those are the conversations people are having. It's never, like, it's always easy in the abstract to say, oh, I would never pay a ransom. Mm-hmm. Like, you're encouraging the uh, cyber criminals. But yeah. until you've been in that situation, now, granted, paying the ransom doesn't guarantee anything. But it's just, it's it's you have to kind of put yourself in those shoes. Yeah. There's a worry that it would drive the activity underground, that people would still find a way to pay the ransom, but they now they're... Now they just have to hide it from from regulators, from you know their their investors, all that sort of thing. I'm just going to Venmo you for fantasy football, <laughs> right? Exactly <laughs> for exactly. an amount of one million dollars, <laughs> yeah. right? And then also people question if this is the government's role here. Should does the government have a place to enforce a ban like this? And that's an interesting question. That is an interesting question. I'm kind of more torn on that question. I sort of think they do, just given how vast an impact it can have, especially on governments, but also uh, large companies in the private sector. Like, it does have downstream effects on the economy. And so I think the government has a sufficient interest in that. If you take the Constitution at its word that the government can regulate interstate commerce, I think a big ransomware attack, if you were to make an assumption that government policy could stop ransomware attacks, I think it's within reason that the government would have a role here. That's my view on it. And then uh, turning to some of the arguments in favor of the ban, obviously, if you can't pay the ransomware people and they can no longer get their money, then they're going to move on to something else, theoretically, right? They're, yeah, I mean, they're, gonna, yeah, they're in this for the money. And if there's no money, why bother? Right, right. <laughs> um, but there's some other interesting things here. I mean, they point out that um, it could encourage better security practices. Uh, if you take away the option of paying the ransom, then that means you have to build a stronger wall around your organization or or put better things in place to prevent it in the first place. That's compelling. Um, You know, the one pushback I could see to something like that is even companies who follow uh, NIST standards and all security guidelines, they are still the victim of attacks. It can still happen uh, as cyber criminals get more sophisticated. So... Yes, it might incentivize better security practices, but that's not a foolproof answer here. Yeah, I, it it, it kind of reminds me of you know that that uh, that that old chestnut of you know we do not negotiate with terrorists, right? Right. You should probably negotiate with terrorists sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think in, you know it's probably more accurately said we we don't negotiate with terrorists except when we do, right? And I think a ban would would be that as well. There, there there, would be exceptions. And that's one of the things they point out here is uh, how do you decide what entities get exceptions? You know, do public companies ban, or are they banned from paying, but a private organization or a, or a critical infrastructure provider is allowed to pay? You know. Where- yeah, and then that gets into sticky, sticky territory there. Then where do you draw the line? What if it's like a public-private partnership, mm-hmm. you know, uh, how do we... I, I know the government has attempted to just, uh, to define critical infrastructure, but there are some things that are sort of on the line uh, between being critical infrastructure and not critical infrastructure. So I think that might cause more problems uh, than it would be worth. Yeah. 
There's an interesting nuance here that they point out in the article that that uh, I think is uh, worth considering. They 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 say that um, sometimes the payments help identifying the attackers. So when you make that payment, you know you can follow the money. You you can right. find out who who was this, where did it go, how did they cash it out, you know how did they try to launder it. Those sorts of things can help with law enforcement and even national security of figuring out who's behind some of this stuff, which is interesting. Yeah, I think that's interesting too. I mean, that's something that's, uh, it's never a situation you want to be in, but I guess there are some positives. It makes it slightly easier to identify your attacker. Yeah. Um, You know, I think uh, there are ways to still have a proper incentive structure without going for a full ban. So they suggest in this article prohibiting insurance companies from covering ransom payments. We've talked about that as a proposal. And then requiring public disclosure of payments, which seems to me just to be like an unnecessary shaming of organizations. Like, let's put you in the town square and beat you with a stick for being a (laughs) sucker and and paying the ransom here, which I I don't necessarily think is helpful, um, especially in situations where you don't know what an organization, what type of decision an organization has to make. And it might not be fair to parade them out in public and and use them as an example of somebody who didn't uh, use proper security protocols. So, I mean, that's an interesting thing. And, and I'm thinking of the ways that that meshes with some of the disclosure requirements that we're seeing. In fact, you know, our, our conversation later in the show with uh, Paul Kurtz is, is about that very thing, you know, some of the SEC's requirements on disclosure. So if you have to disclose a breach, are you allowed to be coy about whether or not you paid the ransom, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, (laughs) I think that becomes a really interesting question. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can just plead the fifth in your filings. Just say, this is a joke, by the way, you can't actually do that. But <laughs> right. just say, I will neither confirm nor deny that right. I uh, paid the ransom. I, I always think about with this sort of thing, what, how different would it be if we did not have cryptocurrency as a payment enabler? Maybe we'll find out in a couple of years when the entire cryptocurrency industry uh, collapses. Although I, I believe that <laughs> something would take its place. That might be kind of quasi-cryptocurrency. Right. But that's a good question. I mean, that's what's enabling all of this. We used to have a system where money could be easily tracked. Um, You know, in the old days, it was tracking the serial numbers on dollar bills. And now we have more sophisticated ways of tracking financial transactions. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the dream of cryptocurrency is to take these transactions off the grid, away from the the peering eyes of the government. Right. These are the consequences. It does become harder to track, uh, and it does make it harder for us to get leads on who's perpetrating these attacks. Yeah. All right. Well, there are a lot more details of this poll that, again, uh, Tim Starks and, and his colleagues at The Washington Post did. So we will include a link to that in the show notes. Uh, do check it out. It is well worth your time. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. 
Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Uh, ben, it is my pleasure to welcome to the show Paul Kurtz. He is Chief Cybersecurity Advisor and Field CTO at Splunk. And uh, he's going to talk with us today, uh, sharing his perspective on how the CISO and the Board of Directors view the new SEC Cyber Disclosure Regulations. Uh, my pleasure to welcome to the show Paul Kurtz. So we've had uh, this interesting uh, new set of rules come from the SEC when it comes to cyber disclosure. Um, Paul, I would love to start off with just kind of getting a little bit of a lay of the land from you. I mean, what was your response when you saw these rules coming down the pike from the SEC? Well, I, I thought it's probably one of the most significant developments we've seen in, in some time of uh, really holding uh, companies to, uh, to task on the status of their cybersecurity efforts. Previously, you know, there were, if you will, 10K filings that specified, you know, uh, uh, some cybersecurity data, uh, but really the SEC had not really done anything to really direct uh, greater uh, compliance and disclosure uh, with the with the new ruling that just went into effect yesterday. So, Paul, why do you suppose that the SEC is the appropriate organization here to, to take this on? It's a, it's a really good question, Dave. When you look at um, the regulatory authorities that are out there today, the SEC uh, does make a, a fair amount of sense because it can cover um, uh, publicly traded companies. And in this case, they've um, also covered uh, uh, companies in, in the investment business as well. And you already have a normal reporting structure uh, for uh, uh, 10Ks and, and quarterly filings. And so it makes it a worthy channel in order to disclose uh, cyber events. If you look out to the regulatory space and others who might have that kind of jurisdiction, they re they really don't exist. And then I think I'd be wrong if I didn't say that, you know, the chairman of the SEC is very much of an activist on cybersecurity and for some time has wanted to, if you will, uh, bring greater disclosure uh, into publicly traded uh, companies uh, so that investors have greater insight into how cyber attacks might be affecting uh, their investments. Hey, it's Ben here, Paul. Uh, first of all, good to be talking with you. Uh, my question is, how do you get buy-in, especially in some of these C-suites, on having cyber expertise on boards or giving enhanced power uh, to CISOs? How do you get buy-in from senior leadership in, in organizations to convince them that this is a serious problem worth addressing, just given resource constraints? 
Yeah. Well, I think the SEC guidance really helps bring that buy-in because now it is hard for boards of directors um, to, so to speak, sidestep and, if you will, um, not uh, see uh, disclosure as an issue uh, of importance. Previously, uh, boards of directors, uh, you know, it was approving the budgets uh, for cybersecurity, a lot of truing and froing on whether or not, you know, we needed to spend or the companies needed to spend money on cybersecurity. But now that's all changing. And I think the CISO now has, if you will, more heft uh, in the ability to influence boards of directors that their um, compliance status uh, needs to measure up to reality. By that, I mean, if you have companies that are complying with, you know, with all the various guidance that's out there, you also need to be able to stand, you know, to back that up with real technology. It can't just be a statement of compliance that is not backed up with um, capability. And in fact, in the case of uh, uh, solar winds, where the CEO, excuse me, the CISO was held to task, uh, in, in actually is is a defendant. I think will underscore um, the importance both for boards of directors and obviously for CISOs in wanting to make sure that um, uh, reality uh, matches whatever compliance guidance and they might be putting together. I guess <laughs> I feel like a lot of CISOs, uh, their pleas fall on deaf ears. Uh, and there's been just a problem of not listening enough to the CISOs. I've kind of heard that in the public and private sectors. And I, I guess my worry is it's going to take an enforcement action for organizations to take this seriously. So I guess my question is, can you give us like the, the worst consequences you can imagine for an organization for not being prepared to comply with these. Let, let's fear some. Let's create some fear in some of our listeners here. <laughs> What's the worst case scenario uh, for an organization if they do not try to address this problem adequately? I think the the worst case uh, scenario is that uh, the SEC steps in and finds uh, uh, somebody not to be in compliance with the regulation and uh, names them as a defendant. Uh, in a case, and we've already crossed that threshold. In the case of Solar Winds, the CISO has been named as a defendant and is going to be held to account. Uh, so that is a worst case scenario in terms of a CISO. What that means in terms of the company itself is a little more opaque. But I would think that uh, going forward, given that the SEC regulation is now in place, that we're going to see more action on the part of the SEC to hold companies to account as well. Paul, I'm curious for your insights on practical things that folks should be doing now. Both both the CISO and if I'm somebody sitting on a, a board, um, what sort of boxes should I be checking off or, or things, lists that I should be making to make sure that my organization is doing the right thing here and not running afoul of the SEC? Yeah, I think the, the security infrastructure that you have to and that you have in place has to match up with what you say you are doing in order to secure yourself. So that's that that's kind of 
8.1. In other words, the realities have to, to match. You have the appropriate security controls in place uh, with the supporting technology, and you're regularly understanding the status of your cell systems. In effect, you know, having that mission control, that ability to um, have real insight uh, uh, in, in real time on the status of your capabilities. This requires really the CISO and the board to come together. In other words, it's not necessarily all on the CISO and it's not necessarily all on the board. So we're going to have to see, or I think what we will see is boards of directors and CISOs working more closely together to make sure that they have a, uh, a program, a process in place in order to handle uh, disclosures relating to, um, to, to hacks. And I think we've seen this uh, just in the past 24 hours with VF Corp uh, disclosing that they've in fact had a breach where you can see that there's um, a level of coordination uh, between the CISO and the company itself as to what they're ready to disclose as far as um, a hack that occurred a couple months ago. Yeah, I'm curious, Paul, in the past, I don't know, year or so, so maybe a little more than that even, it seems to me like there's been a, a necessary elevation of the role of the CISO. And I think a lot of people complain that, you know, CISOs aren't, uh, aren't truly members of the C-suite yet, that there's still some work to be done there. But it seems to me like there's really been a, a recalibration and an emphasis both on uh, the role of the CISO, but then also making sure that your board of directors has the necessary expertise when it comes to some of these technical issues. Do you think my line of thinking there is on track? Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, I, I do think, uh, Dave, it, you you are on track on that in, the, in that you know, I, there is greater coordination um, and understanding between the CISO and the boards of directors. I will say that I do, and, and I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago um, in Charlotte and met with a lot of CISOs, and CISOs are concerned. They're concerned because they now with the new guidance, there's a lot of responsibility that they hold regarding the security of uh of the enterprise and it's and with the solar winds CISO being uh, held to account and becoming a defendant under the SEC, it puts a lot of pressure on the CISO and you could argue that this the net effect might discourage uh, individuals from taking the job as CISO because of the risk because if, if you will the personal risk. That all being said, I think there is an opportunity because of the action of the SEC with regards to the solar winds uh, CISO that it does give a CISO more leverage with the board, um, leverage to ensure that uh, budgets are fulfilled and they actually have the capabilities in order to defend the enterprise. Uh, and so I think it's it's we're we're in a new space here. Uh, CISOs under greater risk, but possibly at the same time having more leverage. Paul Kurtz is chief cybersecurity advisor and field CTO at Splunk. 
Paul, thank you so much for taking the time for us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A quick reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our executive producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Trey Hester. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.